there's a biblical Shakespearean arc to these types of stories, right? But I think you just have to be careful and make sure that whatever your relationship is with money, that it's grounded in the things that you care about. It's grounded in the things that you're going to look back on in 10, 20, 30, 40 years and not regrets. Those are the kinds of constructs that I've learned over the years that have been helpful. Welcome to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. How to make it, save it, keep it. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question. What it means to live a rich life beyond money. My guests share their practices, principles, and evergreen wisdom. I'm your host, Bogumil Baranowski, author, TEDx speaker, investor, and a founding partner of Seacard Associates, a boutique investment firm founded in New York City. Join me on this quest to unearth the wisdom of the ages. My guest today is Philip Ordway, a fellow patient, disciplined investor. He shares his thoughts on being grounded when it comes to money, having common sense, and benefits of productive mornings. Philip Ordway is the managing principal and portfolio manager of Anabatic Fund, LP. Previously, Philip was a partner at Chicago Fundamental Investment Partners. Philip earned his Bachelor of Science in Education and Social Policy and Economics from Northwestern University in 2002 and his MBA from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University in 2007, where he now serves as an adjunct lecturer in the finance department. He's a co-host of a great podcast, The Week in Intelligent Investing. We talk about discovering Warren Buffett and his investment approach, being rational and intelligent with money, avoiding future regrets, changing your mind about an investment, treating clients the way you'd like to be treated. Please help me welcome Philip Ordway. Hello, Phil. Thank you for joining me today. Glad to be here. Perfect. I've been looking forward to it. We have a good mutual friend, John Michaljevic from MOI Global. Absolutely. I followed your work and ideas for a while. We had a great call only recently. And today I'd like to dive a little. Let's jump right in. I'm curious about investing. Why investing? And most of all, why stock investing? Why did you choose to devote so much time and attention and your career to this particular field? Yeah, I wish I could say that I covered annual reports and stock market investing when I was 10 years old or something like a lot of people did. But unfortunately, that's not the case at all. So I always knew that I had an in business. I always had odd jobs growing up. I had a, a notion I was going to go into business in some way, shape, or form, but I really didn't know what that meant. And I really felt like I was pretty clueless and wandering in the week for the college. I was a major and organizational double major. And then what, I still didn't really have a clear, defined path. And so what was the most conventional thing to do, right? I knew that I liked business. I knew that I liked numbers. So I went to Wall Street. So I did a couple of years of the investment banking thing where it was mostly leveraged finance companies, companies on mostly debt-related projects and knew pretty quickly I didn't want it that forever either. So what was the most conventional thing to do from there? School, right? So I was in school pretty quickly without a real strong idea of what I wanted to do. Private equity was cool. Kids were going, but I didn't really have a strong feeling there. But while I was there, ironically enough, I internship at what at the time was a three or $4 billion hedge fund that managed a financial crisis, which was hard to do, but they pulled it off. And while I was there that summer, I had a few of Warren Buffett. And so this, I'm dating myself now, but this was this summer that Warren Buffett gave his, or announced his big gift to the Gates Foundation. 
And I was embarrassed to say that I didn't know the difference between me, Buffett, and Warren Buffett. And here I am, this business school student who's supposed to know everything about business. So I picked up Roger Lowenstein's biography. I still think it's one of the best business books I've ever read. I think he's an unbelievably gifted writer. I've been lucky enough to get and interview him a few times and we trade emails and whatnot. And I think it's just, I couldn't recommend that book any more highly, even though now it's what, probably 20 years old at this point, close to it. Anyway, in the summer, of it was like the cartoon light bulb went off. I just had an immediate epiphany that this is why nothing made sense before then. This is exactly what I want to do with the rest of my career. This is exactly the kind of framework that I've been looking for. And so from that point forward, it was just all signs pointing forward. Everything was a go from that point. So that's really how it all Perfect. It sounds very familiar. I feel like a lot of investors have that moment when things start to make sense. And especially with yeah. value investing, you either get it or never embrace. I definitely think there's something to that, by the way, that either it either makes it in a very short period of time or it never really does. I think this isn't a comment on anyone's ability. It certainly doesn't pertain to intelligence, convinced of an idea. It's very hard to get that idea out of your head. So if you've been convinced of some other methodology or some other way of doing things, which could be totally valid, there's lots of quacks, nonsense out there too. But if you have an idea in your head that's got some validity, even very little, it's still very hard to get it out of your head. And like I said, this benefit of, I, I guess, being a little bit of a blank slate and just stumbling into this, it was at the right time at the right age and it just all clicked. And by the way, to answer the second part of your question, you said, why stock investing? So as I mentioned, I really came at it up to that point, no experience in stocks, so to speak. I were a personal account and whatever, but it's not like I was a stock-focused investor. I spent most of my time in my day job, so to speak, looking at the balance with debt securities and debt financings. And so I think having that credit background was hugely valuable, and partly because of that, partly because of the blind luck of that's just what I was doing, and partly temperament and framework and how I approach things. I've never heard myself a stock investor or an equity investor, even though in my fund right now, a long only equity only portfolio. I always look at the first, I always cheat first. And partly in the last several years, it's been really difficult to find a lot of good credit ideas, or at least good in my mind. Hoping that one of the, I guess in eight, nine, almost 10 years now, we've made one credit in my fund and we would gladly make more if I could find some that met the criteria that we're looking for. But look, I always trick the right balance between risk and reward. And I think having the in a company for that opportunity is a real benefit. And so I think it's always been a little bit odd to me. Look, you have to be very careful to have the right amount of expertise and know what you're doing and not wander too far afield, right? And so credit is very different than equity. But I think defining yourself narrowly is a mistake, right? Credit guys who are extremely sharp, they're really bright, they're very good, very good investors, but then they miss the boat, right? Because they're only looking at credit stuff all the time. And that's limiting and narrow opinion. And otherwise, I know lots and lots of equity investors who are just whistling past the graveyard with some credit stuff. I could think of a great example. I could think of several great examples actually here in 2022, where these were previously high-flying equity valuations, big growth stories where the balance sheet just slowly eroded. And then all of a sudden the equity investor looks down and there's nothing below them. It's like the cartoon coyote stepping off the cliff. It just is very drastic on the way. I think if they had a little bit more of a skeptical credit lens, that would have been helpful along. The way. That makes sense. Putting investing aside for a minute, how did you influence your relationship with money? Yeah, that's a good question. I've never actually had anyone ask that question before, and it, it's a good one. So that, that should probably come up a lot more often. 
I don't know without up his couch and digging through this. I should have probably <laughs> devoted some attention to this beforehand with a third party. But yeah, look, I think I had a little bit of an odd experience in that. I, I should preface by, by blind luck. No, reserve it. I was born into one of the best circumstances a human could be, right? I was born in America in 80 into a family that valued education and with no health problems. You look around the massive amounts of suffering that go on every day for no good reason, just by pure blind luck. So nothing I'm about to say should be construed as anything like self-pity or whatever, because that's truly not it. But when I was about 12 years old, my parents split up and it was just an odd moment where you had one life that you thought was going a certain direction and you had these in a house that you lived in and whatever. And then all of a sudden you find out the next day, like that's all out the window and things are totally different than you ever thought they would be. And going the very blind, naive security to uncertainty and insecurity over a short period of time, I think does have an influence on how you view your say this. I think I would certainly put my mom in this category, have complicated and contradictory relationship with money. And I certainly do too. I think it is as rational and as intelligent as you could possibly be. Nobody's immune from that. That's one of the things that about Warren Buffett's relationship with money. Going back to Roger Lowenstein's book, he would be the first to, Buffett would be the first to admit himself that like he's not perfect, right? He doesn't have a perfect rational relationship with money. And a lot of the ways that he, I think, have really Im impacted his relationship with money. So it's just part of the fabric of, of who we are. I think if from one background versus another, it can definitely impact how you view money going forward. And I think where it can get really destructive and where I've seen people really get off course is when they have, look, and a lot of times that's productive and healthy, but when the chip on their shoulder and the scorekeeping element of money starts to turn into the end-all, be-all, right? The money is no longer about doing something productive. It's about sticking it to people or it's about holding power a person. I think it can get really destructive and lead to some really sad outcomes. And these are long, you know, this, there, there's a biblical Shakespearean arc to these types of stories, right? So I'm not telling anybody and they don't know, but I think you just have to be careful and make sure that whatever your relationship is with money, that it's grounded in the things that you care about. It's grounded in the things that you're going to look back on in 10, 20, 30, 40 years and not regret. So, I mean, that that's definitely a lesson that I've learned as it pertains to the experiences I had growing up and the experiences I've had in adult is that as I try to look forward and say, all right, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, is this decision I'm making about money? Is this something I'm likely to regret? Because yeah, I, this is me up for regret. I think you don't going to happen uncertain, the full of surprises. I'm certainly terrible at forecasting a lot of things, but I think it's relatively easy to say that this decision, a, a good, to, it's a generic example. I'm certainly not going to name any names. I, I've seen lots of people say, I could take this job over here that is close to what I want to do, entails a good set of my life. Or I could take this other job over here that's going to pay me more money. It's got a more prestigious title, but it's going to entail traveling five days a week. And I'm never going to see my family and I'm going to miss all of my kids' birthdays. And I'll forward and say that I'm going to possibly regret missing all of those life experiences five and 10, 15 years from now. Because when my kids are grown and gone, I'm not going to be able to get that time back. So those are the kinds of drugs that I think I've learned over the years that have been bad. Some investors become business owners and they start their own firms like you have. And I'm curious, what has it been like? What kind of experience you had to starting and running your own investment firm on top of managing 
portfolios? Yeah, I would say similar to what we were just talking about. Getting it's a crazy experience that you really explained, gone through it. Not to sound like, oh, this is so important and wonderful and look at me. It's just, it's a, it's an all-encompassing thing. It's very, that can sound like arrogant people that haven't done it, but I think you're expecting their first child or something and they're asking other parents, like, what's it going to be like? What's it going to be like? And my advice to all those parents is like, the only good advice I've ever, there's no good advice for first time parent. Like you'll figure it out, right? Because you go through it, like figure out some things and learn as you go, like help, self-help, like how-to parenting manuals are pretty ridiculous in my opinion. And I feel the same way about the experience of describing like to start and manage your own because every everybody's experience is different. Every element of definition going to be unique to you. So that's look, it's amazing. Experience. It's been a wonderful experience. I always knew that I would regret going back to what we were just talking about. I always knew that I would if I would regret if I didn't take a chance to bet on myself and give it a go. So regardless of whether it failed in the first year or whether it made it 10 years, I knew that I wanted to have that experience. Not in that sense, because I just knew deep down. And I, I to keep stretching the analogy, I have conversations with people that I really care about over the years when they're like, oh, we're really trying to decide a pet or we're really trying to decide if we should have children or whatever. And I'm like, if you have to ask too many times whether you want to do that, the answer is probably clear that you don't really want to do that. And if you don't want to do it, you really shouldn't. And the same is true of doing something like this, starting a fund or, or starting a business from scratch. Like you need to really have that itch to do it because if you don't, it means that you're probably still a little bit on the fence and you're feeling some other others coming into it rather than it being what you really want to do. And if you don't really have that burning desire to do it, it's going to be, it's already hard enough. It's going to be really miserable. Managing your own money and managing money for others is not the same. What's your definition of a perfect client or at least the right client for you? Yeah, that's a great question. And this is something I do spend a lot of time thinking about. And I, I work pretty hard to make sure that if anybody's going to come on board, that they understand what it is we're trying to do and what I can and what I can't do. People and self, look, if they see the world differently, that's totally fine. I'm not at all trying to pass any sort of judgment. There's lots of other firms that can do great things. There are frequency traders out there that actually probably do pretty well for the world and do and they add a lot of value in little areas and that can be good, but we're not one of them. And so if you don't align with our view, which is that we have a very concentrated portfolio of investments. We're going to make relatively few investments, maybe one or two a year, sometimes zero, sometimes three or four, but this is a very low approach. It's going to be very concentrated. We're going to hold things for a long period of time, and we're going to have ups and downs that don't necessarily correlate with the market. And we're going to only buy things that we understand and that we, that we think are a bargain for reasons that we can explain in plain English. And if people aren't on board with that, that's totally fine. But if they are on board with that, then we keep talking about what are expectations, what are the incentives here, et cetera. So the perfect client for me is just someone who understands that. And generally that has tended to be other business owners, small business owners, entrepreneurs, executives of one kind or another, and has tended away from, how can I put this nicely? It has tended to be less where there's some sort of agency issue coming in where there's a lot of check the box mentality or there's a lot of career risk involved or where there's a lot of non-economic. And look, that that again is going to sound like I'm condescending a little bit here. I'm, I'm not entirely. I get it. If you're running some sort of pool of capital and allocating those funds, you have all sorts of issues to consider. And I know the job as well. For, so that's by no means a judgment on that. But I think that the best, to give you a good I have one of my investors happens to live on my street in my neighborhood. He's an, an entrepreneur in the industry, 
and he's a former CFO in that industry. He went to business school. So this is somebody who understands investing, but he's not even remotely doing it in his day job. He's never done it in his day job. But he had the interest one year to ask me about investing and what I'm doing. And I mentioned it and he said, have you this Warren Buffett guy in Omaha? And I said, yeah, of course. And so he said, I want to go to, I go to Omaha pretty much with me one year. And we spent the whole weekend talking and chatting and had a great time. And he ended up investing in the fund and fund. And he asked, he asked me, were better and more thoughtful than the questions I got from all of the major endowments and IOs and every institutional allocator that I talked to, because he was focused on his capital and the common sense stuff that mattered to him. And he would ask things about risk and diversification and investment criteria that were just more thoughtful and more meaningful than any other things I got. Because again, this was capable of evaluating the risk and return on that. And he's been absolutely LP the whole time. And so, we, and we're lucky to have a number of them just like that. So that's my a perfect. I like the sound of that. You have a unique investment style that I find very interesting. How would you describe your dreaming? As I look at the investments that I've made, and this goes all the way back to where I was from until I, there were, there were some investments there. Again, this is where investment can get absolutely beautiful because you get companies that are going some through some sort of restructuring and the the dream scenario there is a company that has a, but is just inherited or for some unforeseen reason developed a bad balance sheet and needs to restructure. And it usually comes with things going wrong at once, like a recession or a panic or something like that. If you get into that situation where the restructuring is underway and you have a path to resolving those issues, but everybody's sitting there freaking out because, oh my gosh, this company's in bankruptcy or it's about to be in bankruptcy or whatever. It's really easy for the psychological factors and the non-economic factors to win the day on the price on the short in the short run and lose fact lose sight of the fact that this could be a great investment. So I remember making some investments in 2009 where we were buying the unsecured bonds of good companies below the net cash just because they were in they were about to be in bankruptcy and they weren't going to own those bonds through a bankruptcy. So they were just selling them at any price. And there was, by the way, a once a generation financial panic financial system and the Chapter 11 process didn't cease to exist, which I'll admit it was a scary sure, but if that ceased to exist, it mattered. But as long as those, it was going to be very hard to lose money buying those bonds below the net cash on the balance sheet. And they worked mostly well and better than I could have ever possibly imagined. And so that was, that's those opportunities are very few and far between. When they happen, you got to be able to seize them. A more prosaic example, or maybe would be, we've made a couple of companies, either some sort of business like a spinoff or a divestiture or some sort of non-distressed restructuring where, again, there was something clouding the opportunity that was pretty obvious to me. And the funny thing, it's often obvious to most people. And you get these yeah, buttresses and you say, wow, this is an amazing business. It's going to earn between X and Y and Z over the next three years. And beyond that, the future looks really bright and they just need to get through this problem here. And the odds are really, really favorable. And the response always starts, yeah. And the but is some sort of short-term concern or irrelevant issue that doesn't really pertain to the value of the business. And so when you get lots of yeah, but says, I think it can be a really good sign that you're onto something. Some of the investments where there's just a good business that's got some sort of temporary problem. It could be, like I said, some sort of non-distressed restructuring. It could be some sort of secular worry. Oh, this market's in and you think it's really not. It could be a cyclical issue. We're certainly seeing some of that right now. And it could be 
the commonality to all these things is that there's a time advantage here. Everybody's happened tomorrow. Everybody's concerned about what's next and they're not worried about what's what it's worth. And so when you get these sharp swings and you see it right now, as we from the 2022, you can look around right now and find lots of businesses that are down 40, 50, 60, 70, 80%. And in a lot of those cases, that momentum feeds on itself and you start to see pretty much everybody asking what's next rather than what's it worth. And so when we, I don't know, there, there aren't very many, but it's if, if we've two or three a year where we have a lot of conviction that we know within a range what it's worth, and we think that barring some catastrophe that's less than 5% likely, that we'll actually get to that scenario where they survive to the other end of the turmoil, that can be a really interesting opportunity. And those are usually the best ones that we've seen. Some investors get really good at buying stock, but a lot less attention is given to selling. What's your selling policy? When do you sell and how? Yeah, I don't think I'm unique in saying that I'm not very good at selling. I suck at selling in a lot of cases. I doubt it. super insightful to add here. I've The one area I'll give myself a little bit of credit is in selling more quickly when I realize I'm wrong. So <clears throat> pretty, pretty recently, I write down physically with pen and ink everything I'm doing and everything that I'm very clearly when I make any sort of new investment. And again, that's a high bar. It has to go through a rigorous process where I write down what I expect and I write down the two or three or four things that really matter to the investment. And I run it through the various channels. I have a board of advisors and a few people that I talk to pretty regularly that unbiased to what's going on. And I want the negative feedback. I want the pushback in advance. <laughs> and there's there's rarely such a thing investment going back to the last question. But when it does, there's, and I say, all right, I'm expecting something like X to happen. And then we get three, six, 12 months into it and something completely different is happening. And I realize this is just uncharted waters or I was just flat wrong. I try to be more honest about selling and selling quickly. So a good example would be publicly is starting in about 2016, 2017, when kicked out American Express and replaced it with Citibank and Visa as their merchant acquirer assessing their credit payments at Costco, that was a real eye-opener for me because they were doing it at, at zero fee um, as opposed to the one or whatever American Express was charging. And I realized pretty quickly that the balance had shifted over the prior two or three years between the co-brand. Now all the power had gone from the issuing banks to, so Costco now had more power than Express and Citibank. And Likewise, airlines now had more power than American Express, which was shocking, right? Because the airlines had historically been a very fragile, weak model. And so I started looking at the, uh, the airlines and, and because of the well-known consolidation in the industry that had taken out a lot of excess capacity, a good example where there was always something wrong with the airlines, right? And there was always something that looked like it was about to go really wrong. And so there was always a chance to buy them at optically cheap prices. But the problem was the infrastructure had never really been fixed. The returns on capital were still garbage. And there really was always that issue of the next shoe to drop. And so frequent fr the frequent flyer programs, the co-branded credit card program, operating margin, billions of dollars a year. And because the accounting was a little bit opaque and the disclosure was poor, it really wasn't the attention that I thought it deserved. And so I dove in, did a ton of work and felt very comfortable with what we owned. And it turns out, by the way, that they were really great companies. It was a little bit of it. But one thing that I'm always amazed by is you can have these great and you meet the CEO and the whatever, and they're really people. But then you go two or three levels down in the organization and it's like a bad Dilbert cartoon, right? Just a cubicle farm of drones that are sitting there like half brain dead drooling on their keyboards. 
And it's a concern. But every time I met with someone, I love, by the way, with all these that we invest, in, I try to go several layers down in the organization and meet people that are running local parts of the operation or two or three or four levels from the C-suite to see what kind of people are there. And I was stunned at the quality of the people. Those are both very high performing organizations. Anyway, I knew that when I made this investment in the airlines, that there were still some things that were outside their control. Just as when you buy any sort of leveraged financial institution like a bank, you're prone to a run on the bank and something going horribly wrong. And if that happens, you need to be prepared to it could be quite painful. And in the case of the airlines, I was concerned of generally two things happening. One being some sort of terrorist attack, something like 9-11 that could really disrupt the industry. That's a very vivid example that a lot of people will remember. And the other, of course, is some sort of natural disaster. You know, you've seen things on a short-term basis like a volcano in Iceland shutting down North Atlantic like that, where it becomes very painful for the industry. For a short period of time, it generally resolves itself and is an, an existential threat. Hit, of course. In January, I became aware of what was happening in China and thought, okay, that's a problem, but this is good. And SARS-1 was a Asia problem. It didn't impact my life. And Asia, they really issue for a big deal. And that, that ended mostly through January. And by the way, I was getting quite concerned that I might be wrong. And then when the last weekend in February happened and the outbreak in Italy became clear. And at the same time, the forward bookings at the airlines just fell off a cliff and started to run. So I, I realized that this was the big one. This was a natural disaster. It just wasn't the type of natural disaster that I had ever imagined. I'll fully admit that a pandemic was underwrote in a formal sense of a risk to this investment. But over the course of a few days there in February, it became very clear that this was a disaster that was going to completely upend the infrastructure and that it was going to go really poorly for the airlines. And so we sold our entire stake in both airlines in the course of a couple of days and in early March 2020. And the stock prices continued to shortly thereafter, but then in a very strange way, they rebounded later that year. Um, and they've continued to just trade sideways. And and I think they're both still below where I sold them right now. And I unfortunately, I think the industry has a long way to go to dig out from that COVID-induced, the damage done to balance sheets, and the bailouts they got were one thing, but the is going to take a while to recover and the business travel environment's going to take a while to recover. On the good side of the equation, the values that we were assigning to the co-branded loyalty not only held up, but they were exceeded when just days of 2020, most of the airlines them as collateral to raise liquidity and debt financings and they spectacular cash flow and profits all the way through almost of the global airline. So that's good. That did some of the safety. The happy news is up losing very little money in both of those, almost none, and just a little bit in the case of Alaska. And the margin of safety is all right is when you're wrong or when something really bad happens, you've got this, this prevents you from getting completely wiped out. It's not an easy thing to do. And it takes a lot of self-awareness to go back on an idea that you committed so much time and money. And they No, that was painful. I, yeah, I will fully admit that like I was sitting there pounding this in early March and thinking this was in the tubes. I'd presented them publicly at big conferences. Actually worked very closely behind the scenes with the executive committee and the directors of one of those two companies. And they were doing really, really cool stuff and improving their corporate governance. They were actually in January of 2020 on their fourth quarter call, they announced that they were going to unveil a, a Buffett style, kind of a revamp of investor relations framework and, and their kind of overall mentality toward their shareholders because one of the other big problems with the industry was because it had been such a crappy industry for so you know there were just constantly people dancing in and out of the stock right there were relatively few long-term holders they just most people didn't view the airlines as an industry that was capable of sustaining a long-term view despite the fact that look 
Southwest and Alaska had never filed bankruptcy. So even in the darkest days of the industry, they had done quite well. Ryanair had done quite well. They've been enormously successful investments, but fully admit that I sat there just shaking my head very, but it was pretty obvious to me that this was the big one. This was, you know, this is a reason. This was, and, and in lesser ways, I mean, there've been plenty of examples of cases where I was wrong, where I should have sold much sooner. So yeah, the reasons I generally sell, you asked, I, I got way off topic there, but the reasons I generally sell are if the if I'm wrong, which we've talked about, if there's something better that comes along, which is a good problem to have, or if the company gets wildly overvalued. And that's very rare in my experience in most cases. And I'm trying to avoid mark-to-market loss. You know, for example, two of our three biggest positions coming into 2020 biggest positions are down, you know, 30 plus percent. And it was pretty obvious to me that at the end of last year, they were pricing in a relatively rosy picture. I could by no means predict a 30% decline. You know, I wasn't trying to sell in advance of that. I, that's not a game that I try to play, right? If it's a business anywhere within the zone of reason in terms of valuation, and I like everything else that's going on with the business in terms of its direction, its competitive advantage, its capital allocation, I'm usually pretty content to sit tight and hold it where managers would tell you that's a mistake. Like you've got to, you've got to ride the momentum. You've got to sell when things going as well as could be hoped. And when the price gets up, you sell. And when the price goes down, you buy. And I get, I mean, that sounds appealing and that's how it should work. It's just very difficult to do that in practice, in my opinion. How does a day look like? How does your process look like? Yeah, it's fun. Kind of through a month into before COVID, I had a very strict schedule. Like the day was pretty similar most days where I would arrive at my desk every day, right about six o'clock. And the prior night, I would have had laid out on my desk what I was going to be reading the next morning. And from 6 until about 7.30, no computer, no phone, nothing. I'm reading whatever it is that's on the top of that day's agenda. That's usually a specific you know, document research I'm doing on a particular topic or company that day. And then, you know, I'd stop, I'd make the breakfast, whatever. And then there was a series of things that take me down any number of rabbit holes the rest of the day. But I tried to front load the reading and the research and the thinking before 12 or one o'clock, because I just found that my brain by the end of the day is less capable of clear and lucid and rational thought. Again, digression, but I was a crossword puzzle junkie for no particular reason. It's sort of a nerdy hobby of mine. And I noticed a long, long time, I mean, 20 years, I noticed that I could do a really hard crossword puzzle with no problem if I did it first thing in the morning. And if I waited until three or four o'clock in the afternoon, I was like struggling or sometimes I couldn't even finish. And I thought that's really strange because it's the same puzzle and whatever. Like, why am I struggling so much later in the day? And so I really try to structure my day around that and leave things like replying to email or administrative tasks or phone calls that don't require deep of thought and, and decision making. It. And then if there is any action that needs to be taken based on that, you know, if I'm happen to be buying or selling something, which again is pretty infrequent. But I try to make sure to leave those thoughts with kind of a push pin in it until the next morning and, and really think about it with a fresh mind first thing in the morning. I just, for whatever reason, my brain tends to work best when I have a couple of bites at the apple and, and can look at things with a fresh set of eyes first thing in the morning. So that's generally what I, I try to set up the day. Thanks too. And as well, but I feel like brain is not the same in the evenings. And when I travel and when I'm in Europe, the day flip because in New York, it's morning. Europe, it's, it's afternoon and sometimes done in the afternoon or evening. And right. brain power is not what it should be. So that's something to think about. Interesting. Yeah. If you were to sit down and talk to someone who suddenly received substantial wealth, inherited or created, what you have for them? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I I guess I've only had this conversation with people a handful of times, and I don't think I'm uniquely situated to give great advice in this scenario, but I guess I would try to keep it just really simple and say, let's start from a place of gratitude and take the view on something. You're lucky. Things are good. We should be happy and, and grateful about this. Start from there. And then let's work backwards and say, what do you need to retain that attitude uh, you know, we're putting here, things are relatively well and stable and happy, and we're going to, you know, not screw that up. So I, I think where I've seen it go most sideways or, or really go badly is where they go from a certain level to a much higher level of wealth or income and really ratchet up their expectations of what that is going to do for them in terms of happiness, and really, really ratchet their burdens, expense level. And it creates kind of this treadmill effect. And this is, again, by no means a, a novel concept that I'm coming up, this, up with. This is a well-documented subject in economics and psychology. But until you experience it or see people experience it, it's kind of hard to explain. Because 80% of the world, like, you're going to wake up one day with a million dollars. Previously, you didn't have a million dollars. They would be thrilled and they would think there's no end to their happiness and that nothing would take that away from them. But then what happens is a few days later, they realize a million dollars is I want two million or I want 10 million or whatever. And they, you know, ad- adaptation to that level gets really severe and really harsh. And I've seen a lot of people do a lot of really dumb things because they forget what they originally set out to do. So if they're trying to save for that's great. It's a very important goal. And so let's focus on that. If they're trying to preserve their wealth, that's great. Let's figure that out and make a game plan for that. If they're trying to grow their wealth, that's all fine too, but you can't, you know, in a hurry, straight line, there's going to be setbacks, there's going to be pain along the way. And I think it's really difficult to make people realize that it's not always simple and easy. I see people that I know, I mean, you can look at any newspaper, any publication on a day-to-day basis, you see people where, and this is old class, people risking what they have and need for what they don't have and don't. And that just doesn't make any sense. I mean, why would you take these crazy risks when it's not going to matter at the end of it, right? It goes back to the minimization that we talked about before. Let's, let's just make sure, you know, come hell or high water, that you're not going to regret things and it's not going to completely blow up in your face if something bad happens here in a few years. And so that's something I'm enormously proud of. Over the last eight and 10 years, like there's been a lot of crazy stuff. And I look back at decisions we've made here and at no point did I get over my skis or, you know, take some crazy risk, just going to bankrupt us if things went wrong or went sideways. Uh, we've really gone 80 degrees the other direction to try to make really good probability adjusted decisions that could withstand things blowing up and could survive, you know, long periods of bad conditions. And so I, I would just call people into that and say, let's start with do no harm and, and work backwards from there and just get you to a good place, in, you know, whatever the time horizon. And if it turns into a great place, that's all great. Yeah, and leave room for mistakes. Yep, exactly. Or see, almost everything can be quantified. Question of success. Yeah, I guess interesting because I think one of the things that's appealing about investing is that it is quantifiable in a lot of ways. It's not quantifiable in all ways, but it's certainly, it's certainly, it draws a lot of competitive people for that reason. And I'm certainly among them. Uh, But I've always had this notion of success along an axis of, I want to be able to do it, you know, I want to, whatever I'm doing, I want to be able to do it in a way that benefits people such that if the tables were turned and our roles were reversed, that I would be happy, right? So I, I tell RLP that the standard I hold myself to for success is that 
you hired me to do a job and if the tables reversed and I hired you and we were sitting side by side, shoulder by shoulder all day long, and I, I'd still be happy with what was going on. If I, if I had perfect insight into everything that was happening and I, I'd be compliant with every decision that was made uh, in terms of you know, the performance of the business, the ethical considerations, trying to do things the right way. Um, it, it, it's the goal, right? Do unto others as you would do unto yourself kind of thing. And that's kind of how I would view the success of it is that I think it's really easy in most areas of business. And I think it's even easier in investing in particular to cut corners and to sell your soul to the devil just a little bit. And that can be a really slippery slope. And so I kind of always wanted to make sure that I never got anywhere near that and didn't do anything that I would look back on and say, boy, I wish I had done things differently. In that regard, I wish I hadn't sold out, so to speak. In that regard, I guess, I guess my like a squishy definition, but, but I want to be have people that partnered with me feel like they would do it all over again, knowing what they know now. And is it is a mutually beneficial avenue of success? And look, it's, it's a way to actually go look, looking for investments too, because the best company in the world, the companies that really change customers' lives and change the industries around them and change whole countries for the better, are the companies do something of value that leave customers better off, right? So Walmart go have saved consumers, God knows how much money over many decades and have really done a good thing in the world. And you can say the same for lots of other companies that have in a way that makes certain, makes problems that fulfills their fiduciary obligation, um, but it also leaves their customers in a better place where you could find married example anywhere you look in this cynical glass half empty business where you're just dog eat dog world. And if you screw somebody, but make a little bit for yourself, that's all good. That just, it doesn't persist. And that's something I've always tried to avoid both in, in my own operation and in companies that we invest. Core podcast recommendations for our audience. Sure. I lead, I am constantly reading all sorts of different stuff. So I had a list that I started, gosh, when was it? I think it was 2009 now. It's been over 10 years. Uh, it started out as Ben and I kind of kicking around books that we'd read that were really good that we wanted to share. And it's grown now. To, I'd have to go look. I don't know how many. There's several thousand people that are subscribed. So it's on Substack now. It's also, and I usually put it up on Twitter when I send it around. So it's every book that I've read, every article that I thought was worth sharing. Um, so if you search my name on Substack or on Twitter, you'll be able to find that. So Everything I put up there it should hopefully be useful. And, and one of the things I really like about it is that uh, I get a lot of inbound recommendations. So people will get that newsletter or they'll see it on Twitter or whatever, and they'll reply back, hey, have you read this book? Have you read that book? Here's a great article, whatever. That's, that's, and that's so welcome. I love it. I've discovered more good stuff that it's, it's amazing. Uh, in terms of what I've been listening to recently that's very well done and very well produced, extremely thought-provoking is the Risk of Ruin touches a lot on what we talked about earlier, which is podcast or which is people that are taking kind of extreme risks in a financial sense and doing things in a dumb way. And then at the other end of the spectrum, people that are really shrewd about odds and probability and taking risks um, in an intelligent way, I would, I would highly recommend that one. Uh, and then at this point, I guess I, I was just yesterday, I read it every day. Matt Levine's column at Bloomberg is just pure brilliance and money stuff. So if there's any, if there's one last soul on planet earth, pretends to have an interest in business and investing in finance who's not reading that. Hopefully I can convince her to fix that problem because it's just, it's, it's an unbelievable. I don't know how he cranks that out, 250, whatever it is. Brilliant. It's unbelievable. That one a lot too. What about your own podcast? Oh yeah, sure. I should mostly plugged our own podcast. So yeah, John started 
this week in investing uh, shortly after COVID in 2020. So John and Elliot and I have been doing that now for about uh, two and a half years. So that's been a that's been a fun adventure as well. I've certainly learned a lot from talking to them every week. So I'm going to all of this in the notes of the episode so everybody can look it up. Thank you so much. It was a, this was a lot of I learned a lot. I really appreciate your time and thank you again for joining me. Thank you. I enjoyed it. It was good to be here. You were listening to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question, what it means to live a rich life beyond money. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and follow, subscribe, rate, and share with friends and family. We rely on word of mouth to promote the show. One click for you means the world to us. Thank you. Until next time, your host, Bogomil Baranowski. The content of this podcast is for general informational purposes only, and so are the opinions of members of Seacard Associates, a registered investment advisor, and guests of the show. This podcast does not constitute a recommendation to buy or sell any specific security or financial instruments or provide investment advice or service. Past performance is not indicative of future results. More information on Seacard Associates is available in its Form ADV disclosure documents available at advisorinfo.sec.gov.